Welcome to LA Survival Guide, a podcast hosted by Los Angeles working professionals discussing LA culture from a millennial perspective. Welcome to the LA Survival Guide podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tony, and to my right, I've got Jay, as usual, and to his right. Hey, it's Andre. Hey, this is Alex Cap. I'm sitting to Andre's right. Today, we're going to take some time and get to know our co-host, Andre, a little bit by asking him a little bit about what he does professionally. Um, Andre works in the design field, and we have tons of questions because personally, sometimes I have a hard time uh Describing what Andre does, so this is why also we're ta- none of us really know anything about design <laughs> at all, right? So and hence the is, questions. Well, it's a really great group because I don't know a whole lot about anything that any of you do besides what you already told me. So that when we interview each other, I'm sure everyone else is going to have a lot of great questions for each other. Tons. So this is part of a series, right, Tony? Right, Alex, this is going to be a part of a series, so uh, stay tuned for future episodes where we will be asking you tons of questions about film scoring and Jay questions about practicing law, and I'm sure you guys want to know all about production. That's right. Oh, of course. That would be great. So yeah, just to get us started, Andre, I know that you originally did your undergrad, you majored in English, right? Right, writing specifically. Writing specifically. So when did the transition happen for you to go from writing and English to design? Because to me, they do seem sort of um, not related. <laughs> kind of disparate. Yeah. I could see how it would seem like that on the outside. Even before I studied design formally, it never felt like this big career pivot to me. The type of writing that that I did quite a lot, so short stories and essays, in my experience, is just a series of solving really difficult problems, which is a lot of what design is. You know, it's having different skill sets. So if you're talking about writing, it's knowing rhetoric, knowing how to support a, um, an idea, knowing how to build an idea in sequence, you know, the skill of writing itself, knowing tempo and pace and diction and word choice and knowing the connotations of words and how to sort of knowing how to weaponize the connotations of words when you need to. I employ all those things very deliberately, and I use the, all those things as very deliberate creative choices. It's a lot of the skills that I use in design nowadays. The design field as it is today is an evolution of two different disciplines coming together. You know, it was historically an evolution of graphic design, so the graphic arts, and mechanical engineering, sort of fusing and becoming this new thing. Everyone will give you a different description of what this field is. The way that I would describe it is by borrowing from the title of the program in which I studied at graduate school. The program was called Products of Design. Not product design, products of design. And it was called that because... The the sort of design that I was taught and the type of design that I advocate for now is the sort that is less about creating a thing and more about creating an effect in the world. Mm. I don't endeavor to create stuff. I aspire to create change. And the way that I can do that is through the built environment. And the built environment could be a service. It could be a business. It could be a product. It could be a piece of software. It could be all those things 
working in conjunction with one another. It could be a physical experience. I'm not precious about what mix of catalyst I create. What I'm focused on is the need or opportunity that my user has and what I can do to sort of create a solution or create some sort of an intervention that could help them solve this problem or give them this new opportunity. That really helps. Yeah. It does. It helps get me out of the mindset of architecture being a type of design or something in the realm of design that you work in. Although I do still feel that architects do use uh, aspects of design and art. This seems more like a modern definition or evolution of what design has become. Yeah. And this definition is often called human-centered design for obvious reasons. You know, like the focus is on, is on the person. It's all, it's, it's since evolved to become a phrase called design thinking because saying it's quote human-centered could mean it's human-centered to to the exclusion of, say, the environment or things like that. So the type of design that I'm that I practice, that I'm talking about, that I'm describing here is is called design thinking. It's not a specific profession unto itself. It's more like a loosely codified set of practices. You don't necessarily have to be a designer like I am to use these methodologies. I've once been asked what's the difference between working in or coming from a field that's in the social sciences and moving on to a field that works in STEM. And it seems like a really logical progression as well. Design is considered a STEM field? Yeah. Design is is a STEM field. For those that don't know what STEM is, what is STEM? STEM is an acronym that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. They are science and mathematics based disciplines. They underpin a lot of what the tech industry is built on. Uh, engineering or software engineering or mathematics or, you know, all of that. Basically, anything that's not the social sphere. So anything in the social sciences would be history, sociology, psychology, literature, philosophy, those things. They're considered sort of separate disciplines. Design seems like the art of STEM if it's a STEM program. <laughs> Agree or disagree? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. You have to define art first, and then I would define it for you. What is art? <laughs> no one can agree on what on that question. Is art art? Are we art? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> A working distinction that I would use between art and design is that art aspires to be expressive, whereas design aspires to be useful. Uh, really? Because I would say a design probably is for both of those ends. Wouldn't you agree? I think a lot of designers have the skills of artists. A lot of us are artists in other areas, but we don't use those skill sets for art. We don't use it for personal or self-expression. We don't use it as something to undo its own end. The skills that we use are meant to affect some sort of a consequence in the world, Right. Um, yeah, and I, I understand that. And your specialty is product design, right? So I think the point that uh, for me, it's I'm thinking of something like the Peterson Auto- Automotive Museum here, something I'm sure you're very familiar with. I'm thinking how they redesigned it. And now it's got this really stunning 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's just this really stunning design building now mm-hmm. compared to what it was. It's original iteration that we're familiar with. I guess it looked like Cadillac emblems on the outside of the building to now this more intricately designed piece of art. That's what I guess the three of us. The building itself. The building itself. Yeah. Yes. It kind of looks like a bloody a fingerprint. <laughs> There's this red base with this light that reflects off of it, but then on the outside, there's like kind of like this Hot Wheels flame design kind of thing on top of that. Yes. That's what it reminds me yes. of. That's what I, that's when I, when I drive by, I think of Hot Wheels, which is fitting because it's a car museum. Yeah. But that's what we think of when we think of design and why for us, it seems like art and design kind of go hand in hand, but you have a better understanding of what design is and you're saying that. They're not necessarily married. Is there a way that you can elaborate more specifically on the fields of design that you're drawn to and how this all fits into what you're referring to as design thinking? Yeah. So I mentioned that design thinking is about having is about creating a consequence in the world rather than creating a thing. Right. Having said that, a lot of people specialize in a certain area just so that they can be better at it, more effective at it, or participate in a in a multidisciplinary team. So some people specialize in uh, UX or UI design, which is often defined as like the design of screens and interfaces. What are those? What do those stand for? UX and UI. UX is uh, user experience, and UI is user interface. Um, so if you if you just apply it to digital screens and interfaces. UX is sort of the architecture of how it works. So this screen leads to that screen. This function leads to this function. Mm-hmm. And then user interface, UI, is what it looks like. So the shapes of the buttons, the color, the gradients, the shading, the typefaces, the pictures, all that. So there are a lot of different specialists in, in the field of design. I explained that some people are specialists in UX and UI. Right. Some people are um, industrial designers. So they design the physical object that you hold in your hand. Some people are experienced designers who design exactly what it sounds like. So design an ex- so a linear experience in time. So you know, beginning, middle, and end. So an, an experienced designer might design the experience of a booth at a car show, or they might design the experience of going to Disneyland. Right. So Disneyland is a very unique experience. It's a very deliberate experience design. Right. The idea of like going through a small tunnel and coming out into a big open aperture. The way that the the things are laid out, the lighting, the colors, what you do first, second, and third—that's all it's very deliberate. It's all very experience designed. Or like, or like at IKEA, where you have to go through the entire store. One hundred percent. So, I was going to ask you what the difference is between UX user experience and experience designer, but I think you just answered it. Yeah, the terms sort of slip in and out of. You know, one might consider this this person and, and that. And so there's some overlap. There's a whole lot of like, overlap. Depending on who's using the term. Yeah. In the design process, there's a rudimentary framework that some people use. Something will begin, maybe a project, you would get a brief. It would begin with research on your user, on the problem space. You would frame that research so you would make sense of it through a series of different methodologies. So you would take that that framing, and you would identify problems or opportunities. You would then brainstorm potential solutions to those problems or opportunities. 
you would then create prototypes and a prototype could, depending on your discipline, depending on the need, depending on your user, a prototype could be physical, it could be digital, it could be experiential. Usually they're very rudimentary. They're just meant to test an idea. And then that becomes a process of iterating on that idea. So you get feedback, you iterate, you get feedback, you iterate. And then as you're doing this, you're sort of going up levels of fidelity. So if I'm creating an app and I've done my user research, I've framed the sort of problem space, I've identified where the problems or opportunities are, I create my first rudimentary prototype, I might just cut rectangular pieces of paper and draw functionalities on an on them as though it were an app and then show them to people. What about this? What about this? What about this? You know, or I might create some sort of a role-playing game in which I could test it. You know, and, and then do like, this, do this to get feedback, and then take that feedback and make a, a next level of fidelity. So maybe the next one I mock it up in Photoshop. And then I do it again. The next level of fidelity, I may create a an interactive digital prototype. And then just go on and on and on and on until I have my my finished design. I have a question for people that are designing uh, apps to include the UX and UI. Has the definition of graphic designer been expanded to include that? Or what is the difference between that kind of design and graphic design? Sounds like there's overlap there too. Right. There is. A lot of people who have degrees in graphic design become UX or UI designers. Graphic designers have all the skills or a lot of the skills necessary to be a good user interface designer, right? It's about color and line and shape and form and hierarchy and and all those things that graphic designers know. If you're just a graphic designer, usually it's just the graphic arts. So you might work at an ad agency or a branding agency and create branding posters, things like that. In addition to possibly doing some of this stuff with... App designs. You, yeah. You, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, it seems like the way we talk about design a lot comes up in very consumer-facing aspects of life, uh, You know, whether it be the products that we use, iPhone, uh, different technology, apps, that kind of thing, cars. Is design limited to consumerism? It must have application elsewhere, but that's just the way that we seems like we interact with it the most. Yeah, thank you for asking that. And no, it is not simply limited to consumer-facing products. It's an easy example to give because people use apps, and I can describe this process through the the lens of an app. But like I said earlier, design is about affecting a consequence in the world, not the creation of stuff. The creation of stuff is the old definition of design. It It was the definition used by product designers in the 50s and 60s and 70s And the people who are my age, so like my era of designers, sort of the young era of designers, is a reaction against that, is a reaction against the era of designers as designing stuff. Because what we found was that designers would create stuff and that stuff would get purchased and purchased and then thrown away. And a lot of this, quote, designed stuff is now populating landfills throughout the world. The question, though, was about consumerism. These sorts of experiences that are being designed are also targeted towards consumers. I'm just trying to understand, outside of just the physical stuff part of design, 
the other aspects of design do seem to also point towards more of a consumer-based uh, interaction. Sure. All of them are applied there. Again, design is simply a loosely codified set of, of skills, and it's often applied toward consumer products. When it's not, what it looks like is, you know, work being done around climate change, work being done around healthcare, work being done around gender equality, and designing interventions, designing the built environment to react against those sorts of things. I don't know if there's an equal number, but there's a very large percentage of the design field who work completely in the nonprofit sector, you know, who don't design objects or do, who do design objects and those objects go to nonprofit causes. Is that not still a consumer? We would call it a user, but it doesn't have to be a product. It could be a service where there's never anything physical you touch. How does culture influence design? What do you mean by culture? Yeah, I think the thing that's, I think what I'm even even more specifically thinking of is, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm looking at furniture a lot right now. Looking at a lot of furniture, me and my wife just moved. And, you know, we see a lot of different inputs and different styles, different designs that, you know, ostensibly trace their influences from different cultures. I don't know. I think it's just an interesting thing to me that it does seem like design utilizes a lot of different expression in the way that it is carried out. Yeah, certainly. I don't know if where I would put furniture design in, in the spectrum of, of design, if there is even a spectrum, um, if one might consider it a decorative art. I don't know. Here's your thing, though. He has a need. He needs to be able to seat people in his new place. Uh-huh. Also taking into consideration how many people he would he might have over, how frequently he might have them over. So as a designer, you would take all these things into consideration, right? When you start to pick the materials that you're working with and then thinking about how to put those materials together in a way that fits the needs of their new place and their needs, entertaining guests or whatever. So that's a specific part of design, not necessarily the in the virtual world, it is a physical design problem to have. You would design something, right? Yeah. And in turn, (laughs) if you were from here, the way you solve that problem would be different than someone who uh, was from a different cultural background and exposed to different things, maybe studying the same principles that you studied, but now they are using different design elements in putting this together. Would they not... Yes, like anything else, I think someone from one culture may have one context, someone from another culture may have another context. You may have a problem and arrive at two different solutions for the same problem. And I think that's a really good, important thing to keep in mind when you're doing design work. No one ever creates anything in a vacuum, right? All design is done in context. And I think that's something else that perhaps the previous generation of my field got wrong. You had these superstar designers who sat in some beautiful studio somewhere and sketched things and said, I decree from on high that this is what the world needs and here you go. And a lot of times that that resulted in a lot of waste. Yeah, so different designers create from different perspectives. And that's good. And I think 
teams need that. Teams need as much diversity of thought as possible because diversity hedges against bias. What we see a lot in the technology industry with software design at the moment is bias being designed endemically into software. We're seeing it in how like AI, for instance, does a lot better job recognizing white and male faces than it does at recognizing black faces or female faces. And that is a result of the samples that they use to feed the AI were all white male faces because a lot of the software engineers are white males. And that's just one example of a myriad number of examples within the design field that show the perspective and ideology of the team creating the object will inevitably result in the makeup of the object itself. If you have a short-sighted biased team, you're going to have a short-sighted biased product. If you have a, a team that has no women or people of color on it, they're going to not understand the needs and life and perspective of women and people of color. Or they're going to think they understand it and completely miss the mark and create something even worse. Oh, goodness, we don't need any more of that. <laughs> so I think the, the question you asked was, does different cultural perspective inform someone's work? The answer is yes, and we need it to. I would argue that diversity is not only important on design teams, it's absolutely necessary because design has this multiplying effect for systemic problems. If you have a team that creates a racist product and that racist product goes out into the world, it's going to make racial problems. Well, you know, I mean, I think we need to be clear about the, the, the context that we're talking about, though. So it's interesting that this is this, this is absolutely correct, right? I mean, we cannot have products that are being designed for the worldwide market that are made without diverse thought. Um, however, we think about how products were designed 50 years ago, 100 years ago. They weren't necessarily being made for the world, the, the, the global market. They were being made for Youngstown, Ohio. You know, products were being made for me and my neighbors. Uh, because I, I have some extra cotton or I have some extra wool or something like that. Um, but now now that we're making products that are anticipated to be sold in Egypt or products that are going to be sold in Ukraine or the Czech Republic or something like that or in Argentina, we need to have products that are made with that kind of input. Um, and I just think that's an interesting uh, aspect of our of our society now. And that's 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 even reflected even like in, in film and TV, right? I mean, uh, I was just watching something that was talking about how how much influence the Chinese market has on Hollywood, you know, studio choices. It's just an interesting thought that diversity is important for the audience, and the audience is the world. Why cars? Why cars? Why cars? We know that you're interested in them. We've yeah. heard you talk about them before. Why? So I'm a specialist in automotive design. Even more specifically than that, not the sort of designer who will draw and sketch the form of the car. That's a different discipline. I am looking at it from sort of a business and experiential perspective. I think what I'm most interested in the, in the business vertical of mobility is what could be possible in terms of products and services given the new technologies that are sort of coming up today. So my question though is why are you so interested in cars? Like what what in, in the same manner that 
you transitioned from writing and English mm -hmm. to the design world. What about it in cars led you there from design in general? Why here? do you like saxophone, Alex? <laughs> what? <laughs> Why do you like piano? There it is. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Why do you like saxophone? <laughs> <laughs> because from a very young age, my parents forced me to practice. But over time, I grew to appreciate music. I think with me, it was much the same. You know, my dad is a big car guy. I think his first car was a, a 69 GTO, which is a very famous American muscle car. He had a, a Fiat Spider. He had a, a vintage Toyota Land Cruiser. And these are all like, they're good cars, but they're also like, for car people, like they're very well-selected cars. You know, they're very well-respected cars in the community. But, you know, like a lot of parents do, my dad had a passion and I was just sort of around and, and witnessed it. And I think if you're an attentive kid, you just sort of begin to feel what they feel. And after sort of, being introduced to the the world of cars by my dad, what I began to understand was that it's really almost not even about the car itself. You know, cars are this wonderful inflection point for so many different fascinating things about the world and about people. I can be interested in cars from an engineering perspective, you know, and I love learning about the physics behind aerodynamics and material science and the use of, you know, materials like carbon fiber reinforced plastic and aircraft grade aluminum. And I can look at it from a design perspective, you know, and see how like different artistic movements throughout the last hundred years have influenced car design. I can look at it from a historical and business perspective and look at the way that cars shaped and were shaped by major world and economic events, you know, World War II, the advent of industrialization at the turn of the 20th century, the digital revolution in the 2000s, 1990s, you can look at cars from a social perspective and see how they enabled social phenomenons to be created. You know, So the invention of what we now refer to as teenagers, this discrete time in one's life known as their teenage years, didn't actually exist until the 1940s and 1950s post-World War II. And a lot of a lot of the creation of what we now know as the teenager and this sort of intermediary time in, in one's life between childhood and adulthood was facilitated by the car and the car's sort of sudden appearance in people's lives following the U.S. military industrial complex shifting over to civilian industry, you know, after the war ended. You had all these factories that were building tanks and war machines suddenly retooled to build for returning GIs and baby boomers. And cars facilitated that in this wonderful way. Cars have also caused a whole lot of problems, perhaps an equal number of problems. Cars have contributed to urban sprawl and suburbanization and the flight of white middle-class Americans from city centers to get away from oftentimes poor immigrants of color who were sort of trapped in dense urban areas. So you can look at cars from all these different perspectives. You know, scientific, social, historical. Um, and I just find it to be this wonderful entry point to interacting with the world. Awesome. So let's talk about design and cars and how they intersect. So like, what kind of design problems do cars pose nowadays that you would like to have a hand in uh, proposing a solution? I, 
I'm so lucky and I'm so grateful that I was born the year that I was born. I'm so grateful that I'm an adult in the time that I'm an adult because we are in the midst of the most exciting time in the history of the automobile since its invention. Cars are a product of the Industrial Revolution. The way that we recognize cars now are invented around 1885, and they haven't changed much since then. It's the same layout, it's the same ownership model, it's the same basic design, same basic functionalities. We've tacked on things, we've improved everything, but really our relationship to cars and cars' relationship to the environment hasn't changed in over 100 years. Okay. We're in a really interesting context in world history right now. We have a growing population. You know, we're going to expect about 2.1 billion people to be added to our population in just the next 30 years. By 2050, about 68% of the world's population, according to the UN, is estimated to live in cities. And those people need to get around. Yeah, and those people need to get around. And in addition to that, you know, we're facing unprecedented problems around climate change and all the different problems that climate change creates for for world populations, especially those around cities, which tend to be near water and tend to have a particular need for human resources. Resources like energy, transportation, housing, and mobility, not just cars, but mobility plays a really important role in the life and health of a community. So Adding upon that, you know, we're we're in this context right now where cars haven't changed for a century, where the world is changing, and we're also at the very beginning of this massive seismic technological shift, you know, and there are really like four pillars of it. You know, you have um, alternate forms of propulsion, you know, so no longer is it just internal combustion engines, you're seeing hydrogen fuel cells, you're seeing electrification you're seeing new technologies around, you know, driverless and autonomous capabilities. And finally, you're seeing new forms of ownership models like car sharing. Right, right. So you have a car industry that hasn't changed in a century, four major new catalysts for change, and a world that desperately needs that change. And the question becomes, how can we create a new vision of mobility that will serve the world's population and their new needs in the next 50 to 100 years, given these new technologies. You know, the way that we've used cars in the past 100 years cannot continue. It, it simply cannot. We don't have the resources, we have too much need, and we're destroying our environment. If if we keep doing what we've done in the last 50 years, if we keep doing what we've done in the last 20 years, we're going to cause categorically more damage to ourselves, to our livelihoods, to the environment than we did. Our behavior must change. It's not a question of should we or if we or can we. It, it simply must. We have all these new technological tools at our disposal to do it. So now the question becomes, are we willing to do it? And if so, how? And what's so fascinating is it's anyone's game right now. No one has the solution for mobility. There is none. Every city, every culture is going to need their own solution. And it's going to be a mixture of different solutions put together. What new policies will need to be created? What new products will need to be created? How will we need to change our behavior? And how will we get ourselves from the behaviors that we have now to be the behaviors that we're going to need to have in the future in order to be 
healthy and sustainable and equitable. Mm. You know, these are big, massive, seismic, systemic problems that involve products and businesses and policy and people and time and money and... And money. <laughs> and more money. <laughs> yeah. And I just find that it's just... It, it's very scary because we can mess it up and there's certainly the opportunity to cause more damage and and more damage will probably be caused. But I think to be a designer is to fundamentally believe that the world can be better tomorrow than it is today. And what inspires me so much is that there's so much of an opportunity in the mobility space to do that. And I want to, with my career, in whatever way I can, big or small, contribute to contribute to a better vision of what tomorrow can be. As a pessimist, I love to sallow the, the optimism that you just settled that long line of thought on. I love the unintended consequences of pro- progress. I mean, think about why the car was invented, right? We had all these problems that we needed to solve, individualized transportation, with horses was not cutting it. There were discrete problems with horses. You know, carts, just not efficient. So we designed, you know, petroleum-powered cars that have evolved in the 20th century. And now the unintended consequences of everyone having access to increased mobility of that has created a horrible air pollution problem. It's created a shortage of resources. And it's created all these other infrastructure problems that we are continuing to need to, to uh to solve. Yeah. I think it's just an interesting, you know, not not at all saying that, but I guess we'll just have more unique problems to solve with every step that we take. At least there's less manure on the streets. Less. Less. <laughs> it's not eliminated, apparently. <laughs> well, I certainly agree that it's a really cynical way of, of saying that the future is just going to be different kinds of problems. The future certainly will <laughs> also be different kinds of problems, but I think we need not make the kinds of mistakes that we're making I think those, quote, unintended consequences, say just giving cars as the example, we knew that they were a problem a long time ago. We knew that traffic was a problem. We knew that smog was a problem. We knew that resources were a problem a whole long time ago. Yeah, like, and like in the 50s. Like we knew smog was a problem in L.A. in the 50s. That's, what, that's what's frustrating to me. And yet we continue down this road. Big money. Big business, lots of money. Like there's just so, so much behind keeping our current automobile problem a problem that there's so many people benefiting from it. There's more to it than just designing something that's going to work because now you also have to fight against something that has been in place for a long time. That's just, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And outside I, think, of the problem. I think that's a really important point that you made. And I'm really glad you brought it up because. A part of being a designer today is not just designing an artifact that will have an end. It's even more than that. It's understanding a context, understanding that when I design, I design within a system that already exists. If we're talking about mobility, mobility is a system with, you know, major players. You have paying customers, you know, major users. You have major powerful car companies. You have their network of suppliers. You have cities and local governments and local policy. You have federal policy. You have natural resources and the lives and environment in which those resources are mined and gained and refined and transported. It is a massive interconnected web of a system. And public transportation companies. uh, Yeah, as well. A system that you call mobility. I think 
being a designer is being intentional about designing within that system, trying as best you can to understand what that system looks like, drawing it on paper, going and sitting down in the homes of these users and these stakeholders, sitting down with policymakers and listening to what they have to say, and designing with people and not for people, and especially not at people. I think you've done a great job of explaining to us your love and passion for design. I feel like I have a much better understanding of what it is you do and what you're passionate about now. And I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and explain this to us. No, thank you for talking to me about it. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and subscribing and liking the podcast. We also ask that you share with a friend. This has been a conversation with Andre Orta about design. And until next time, we will talk to you guys later. LA Survival Guide podcast is produced by Tony Rosenthal and edited by Alex Cap and Tony Rosenthal with music by Alex Cap and graphic design by Andre Orta.